You're listening to the Mobcast Network. So welcome to a very special Mobcast. I guess Mobcast special number two. Um, we lost uh, one of my favorite filmmakers this past week, or this, this weekend, Wes Craven, and I thought, as a network, it's something I wanted to do to to just remember him and remember our fond memories with him. So I brought a friend of mine, Dave Brock, uh, who's like me. We're just diehard horror fans, and so and we're both, we're both big fans of Wes, Wes Craven. So Dave, welcome to the show. And well, thank you. Glad to be here. We're gonna we're just basically gonna have a little conversation about Wes Craven for a little while, and so sure. just sit back and enjoy it. So okay. it's, it's it's gonna be fun. I. I think my first encounter was worst grade was as a kid was Elm Street. I think that, and then I knew there was stuff before then, but I didn't see anything before right. until after. But I remember being, I say Elm Street was eighty four, so I was seven, mm-hmm. and just being terrified mm-hmm. yeah. about about you know the 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 the, the burned Freddy Krueger who who will get you. And yeah. I remember playing in the schoolyard and the kids doing the mm-hmm. the little nursery rhyme, and yeah. so. Yeah, so Wes Craven's kind of was always there, the the budding of my interest in film, definitely in my interest in horror. Right. How how did you get all? Oh, Lord. <laughs> well, you know, I think, um, like you, I think my first exposure, my first conscious exposure to Wes Craven was also with Nightmare on Elm Street mm-hmm. in 84. Actually, I saw it in a theater, like you. And uh, did you saw it? In no, I saw it on video. So oh, video. Okay. So it was late 84, maybe early 85. Right. But the. No, I was I was about around seven or eight when I saw right. it because my parents didn't didn't take the seven year old to go see the horror <laughs> film. I but, but I did see, uh, yeah. I think I saw three up in, in theaters, mm-hmm. and, and I don't know why 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 Wes didn't uh, didn't direct three or four. He had a lot of input, right? And so and we can we'll, but we'll get in all yeah. that as we. Well, yeah. Well, my my exposure was uh, was actually in the theater, and um, I grew up just to give you some background. Mm-hmm. I grew up in a family that absolutely love horror films. I, I maintain to this day that my grandmother, God rest her soul, had the best collection of horror films uh-huh. I've ever seen. So, so we grew up around it. My family, it's a family of uh, voracious readers, and they also read a lot of horror, mm-hmm. Stephen King and, and, and Dean Koontz and, and, and all those great ones. And uh, so, so I, I grew up knowing the difference between, you know, what was real and what was fake. Right, and, right, right. And, and, it, and I had a really early fascination with uh, with makeup effects. So uh, I was, uh, I think the year before, my sister for Christmas had gotten, like, every issue of Fangoria that had come out at that <laughs> That's time. very cool. So anyway, so, yeah, my, my first conscious uh, exposure to Wes Craven was in 84, seeing Nightmare on Elm Street, which was a movie I actually... I remember vividly at the time I wasn't really keen on seeing because my dad was really excited about it. Right. He saw the trailer or the preview or the commercial on TV or however he saw it, and he was saying, oh, we're going to go see this movie called Nightmare on Elm Street. And I remember seeing a snippet of something. I think it might have been like the the shot of Nancy with the phone and the tongue coming right. out. And I thought, well, that's kind of bizarre, you know. Even my, my fourth grade self. <laughs> And, uh, but, you know, I thought, you know, it's, it's the movie, so sure, and figured I might get some enjoyment out of it. Right. But I wasn't fully expecting to love it. Changed my entire <laughs> freaking life. I mean, to this day, I remember just that, that first sequence when you, you see, you know, Freddie in the boiler room building the glove. And, right. And immediately I went home trying to, to, to build my own little replicas of Freddy Gloves, I think, like, like I everybody. I sure did. I made mine out of a um, a brown uh, work glove yep. and yep. popsicle sticks. Oh, I, I never thought to use popsicle. I, I just did uh, cardboard. I took shoe boxes and cut the blades off. And we did, we did popsicle sticks. Well, Kamal was in arts and crafts at the time, so I had popsicle sticks. Uh-huh. And I didn't glue them, so I had tape, mm-hmm. scotch tape, and, and my own little Freddy Glove at <laughs> seven or eight years old and running around. Yeah. I'd actually, oh, sorry. No, this is just weird and, and kind of ironic. A small child playing a child murderer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's always the the, the dichotomy I, I can never get my head around. <laughs> but I actually, I remember getting. A, I was banished from making Freddy gloves in uh, in my grandmother's house because 
by the time I got to high school, I started experimenting with um, uh, uh, galvanized aluminum sheet. Trying to make, trying to make, yeah. And I would accidentally leave little sharp shavings of aluminum on the carpet and uh. take cut. So, so <laughs> But that, but that was my, my first conscious experience, experience with Wes Craven. Now, without knowing it, my very, very, very first ever exposure to Wes Craven was actually earlier when Swamp Thing came out. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't aware that he actually was the director of that film until much later. Right. But, you know, it certainly didn't have the same impact that Elm Street had. But, <laughs> right. But as a kid, you know, Swamp Thing as a kid was much cooler than Swamp Thing as a 40-year-old when I watched it again last year. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, but that, that my first memorable exposure, like like you, was with... My first... We've got some motivational stuff going on here. <laughs> That's my uh, movie score <laughs> channel. I'm just going to access out. So sorry about that. No, it's okay. Um, but, but yeah, like like you, my, my first uh, world-changing exposure was uh, with Nightmare on Elm Street in 84. There's... I mean, it is... I mean, it is a you know, Freddie is a, a pop culture icon and, and and came pretty strong in '84. Um, and I love. There's so many just great things in that first movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, the 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 first time we really see Freddie with and Tina's in the house, and and you see the long arms Freddie, oh. weird slender man kind of, which would you know kids relate today to, right. but coming down, oh, it's creepy. That's the actually, it's funny you mention that. That is the very shot. That I remember so clearly sitting in the theater and just the idea of, of somebody whose arms can just stretch out forever and ever and ever right. and you can't get around it. But just that image is, uh, and I actually have another, I have a story related to that when I actually got to meet Wes Craven. Oh, okay. Which I might want to talk about later. Oh, but, yeah. but it was, I remember when I saw him at a film festival in Cleveland, he, uh, he talked about his life's work. And it was in a movie theater. And they showed clips of his work and they showed that particular shot. And it blew my mind because immediately I went back to being in fourth grade sitting in the theater and I'm looking at that shot and I'm actually looking at Wes Craven right. in front of the screen and I was just geeking out all over the place. But 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 it's funny you mention that because that, that's probably the one shot if I were to break the first Elm Street down into just a couple of iconic shots, that would probably be the first one. Oh, another th- thing I think I like the, the movie, and I think another one the movie resonates because I mean, first of all, the, what what it does for horror. I mean, Jason does does something special for camp sites. Yeah. You you know, but it's an activity you have to go do. You right. have to go to Crystal Lake to this one specific place to find this maniac who make you know. There's there's a location with Nightmare on M Street. While it's like on the street, mm. it's in your dreams. Right. Everyone has to sleep. Right. Everyone right. has to sleep, and so, mm-hmm. you know, on top of the horror that you've got that you're watching, this what's great about horror is this, the stuff you take home with you, the thoughts, yeah. you know, the, the creepiness. And that's, that's what I like about it. Mm-hmm. And that note that I'm going to close my eyes and go to bed. There was some was a small as a small child. There were some many nights I was sleeping in my parents' bed <laughs> <laughs> after that movie. Yeah. But that's those are one of the things that resonate. The other thing I think that's what this makes this movie unique is instead of the typical heroine, they make a strong. Nancy's a very strong female heroine in this. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, she yeah. gets to the point where you know, and it, it does come almost like the the psycho route because you're not sure who your main character is until midway through the movie because right. you think for a long time you think it's Tina's story right. and then suddenly no, then Tina dies and you're right. like what's <laughs> going on here and then it's it's, it's very Hitchcock-like in, in, yeah. that, in that and I think it was intentional I think so too I, yeah. I mean I mean, I couldn't ask him I didn't, I've never read but just watching it and seeing, right. you know, going back and looking I think it, I think it has a a very Hitchcock feel to it mm-hmm. but watching Nancy who were watching her friends die and the town being kind of okay with her. Right. <laughs> yeah. Springfield, wherever, is just pretty okay with her kids dying. Right. It's another funeral this week. And and that's like that thing about the, the, all the films. They're, yeah. they're very okay. You know, if, it happened, if something like this happened today, there would be some kind of epidemic or they would do some you know, you know, lockdowns or whatever. But no, right. no, they're, they're okay with it. <laughs> right. Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, with, especially with... Um, uh, the sleep being the great social equalizer. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody sleeps. So, so exactly like you said. I mean, you got it like with Friday Thirteenth and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween or, or any of those really, really great examples from the slasher genre. Right. You know, you you appreciate them for 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 their 
for being the benchmarks that they are. But with something with Nightmare on Elm Street, it's like you can you you can relate to it whether you want to or not, right? Because everybody sleeps. Um, and 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 also what you were saying about uh, uh, just the the idea, and, and this was a thing that that actually I was thinking about again, my fourth fourth right. grade self thinking about was I thought that the parents, granted, I mean Freddy Krueger as a character was just I mean. There's no redemption. Right, 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 right. Uh, but I thought as, as bad as Freddy was, I mean, you know, what the parents did mm-hmm. and how they covered it up, how much better is what, you know what I mean? I right, mean, right. And it's from the point of view, I mean, they, they of course they did it to protect their kids. Right. But the, the cover-up and the right. lies. Right, but that's the catalyst of Freddy's return. Right. I mean, Fre- Freddy is only here because of the sins that sure. their, their parents are. You right. know, there is a really great... Obey the law lesson in this. Mm-hmm. If they would just obey the law, and, and and I'm only going. I mean, we can talk about the the, the series later sure. uh, because in the the, the pilot of the series, they kind of go back and mm-hmm. kind of show you what happened. And for those who don't know, there there was a, a Freddy's Nightmare series, <laughs> and it's it's an anthology series that I wish would come on DVD. It really yeah. needs to, it needs to be. It's it's campy. Um, mm-hmm. Brad Pitt was in an early one. Yeah. It's got, it's, but it's it's very campy. But the first episode is kind of a a backstory, a prequel to A Nightmare on Elm Street, and so Toby Hooper, Toby Hooper, yeah, Toby yeah. Hooper directed that, and so you know, um, so there's a little bit, but we don't know that backstory when we're watching the first right. movie. We just see this; they took the law in their own hands, right? And and that's kind of the sin they shouldn't have done because it gives. You know, whatever makes Freddy Freddy makes him come back, and so right. so there is a there's a I think there there's always been the, the you got to obey the law. You know, right. Vigilanteism isn't the answer. Right. And, you know, he should have stayed in prison or been mm-hmm. executed. Of course, you know, when you talk about executing, um, Wes Craven has his execution movie with Shocker. Shocker, I would say. <laughs> so you still know. the best sound, one of the best soundtracks ever for right. a film. It was funny. I, um, speaking of Shocker, Shocker, because we'll just dance around all of uh, his career. Um, I um. I was watching X Files recently. Mitch Pelletti. Yeah, right. And yeah. I'm, I'm watching him, and 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 I okay. My relationship with X Files is weird. I didn't watch it when it was on, as when I was when I was younger, and I've only seen a couple episodes. When the first movie came out, that's where I became a fan of it. But I didn't go back and watch everything. Right. So the summer, I had some time. I was like, I'm. It's on. It's on Netflix. I'm on Prime. I'm like, I'm gonna watch all the X Files. And so Skinner shows up, and I'm like, I know this guy. Where do I know this guy? I'm like, Oh my god, Chuck. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which is a a bizarre film too. I haven't seen it in a very long time. You know, and I think part of that, I, I, I know that when uh, when Craven when when Wes Craven did that one, he was at the tail end of his whatever agreement that he had with Universal right. in the live films, and he it was a three picture contract, and I think Shocker was was the last one that he was con- contractually obligated to do. So what were the other two? Do you um, see that? Uh, I'm blanking. I want to say, or maybe it might have been the first, because I think people under the... Sti- no, that was New Line Cinema. I'm blanking. Let's look. We, oh, yeah. you know, we have the technology. We can IMDb this. Yeah. But anyway, um, you, were, you were saying. Yeah. So. Um, so so he's doing a shocker, and I think, I don't know if it was just the powers that be at Universal were pressuring him to do this, or I think the idea was to try and create the next Freddy Krueger. So... Because this was like in 1990, right? And so he was trying to, I think, integrate a lot of the, like you know, with Freddy's red and green sweater, you had Horace Pinker with his orange jumpsuit, the black and white checkered. So you you saw a lot a lot of the icon building, right? You know, uh, which which uh, I thought personally, and I think it might have been, you know, uh, being at the age that I saw it, I was going right into high school. at that point, Wes Craven could have directed scenes from a phone book, and that would have been first in line. <laughs> well, he uh, he did do Vampire Brooklyn. And, and, <laughs> yeah, you know, for me, I mean, you know, I the, the one that always stands out to me that I mean, it's a great movie, but it's the um, the violin one he did with Meryl Streep, Music of the Heart, it's, uh, Music of the Heart, which is yeah. like oh, Wes Craven movie, You're like and where's the slasher yeah, in this? Yeah, <laughs> but it, it, it's a fine and film. I just watched that two months ago, actually All on right. Netflix. I, I saw it on um, I thought it was on theaters. We. You know, I mean, I'm a West Craven fan. I'm going to see what, like, yeah, direct the phone, but I, w- I would watch yeah. it. Um, if the three-picture deal would, I guess it would have to been um, Serpent in the Rainbow, mm-hmm. Shocker, and then um, People on the Stairs. That that seems about that right to me. That sounds about right, yeah. I'm looking at it. When we got to talking to him, you said 90. And yeah. My favorite out of all of them is um, um, Serpent in the Rainbow. You know what? Serpent in the Rainbow, that movie, that's another, I, I'd say if I were to rank... Wes Craven's films in terms of 
the ones that really gave me the heebie-jeebies. Right. Nightmare on Elm Street would be the first, and Serpent and the Rainbow would be right after because, um, again, the you, you know the the story behind that. Please, like the um, I'm, I'm sure you. I have, but uh, we have an audience. Oh, right, right. <laughs> the, we have a microphone. We keep forgetting that we're having a conversation. Yeah. The uh, so what they went to Haiti. Um, and the story itself, I mean, it's about the, uh, the actual voodoo practice of creating zombies using this substance called uh, tetrodotoxin, which was created by uh, grinding the bones of pufferfish. And, um, and the guy that wrote the book um, of the same name, uh, he was ostensibly Bill Pullman's character. I and, mean, of course, right. they fictionalized a lot of it. But um, when they actually, when they went to make the movie... Um, they shot it in Haiti, and this is one of the things that Wes Craven talked about in, in terms of the things that kind of bothered him in his career at, uh, at, that, at that film festival. But he said that he remembers um, a lot of the crew becoming, uh, they started to become increasingly uneasy mm-hmm. as the production went on. And the writer had, uh, the screenwriter, I, f- I forget who it was, um, had a breakdown. He actually had a breakdown during the making of it, and it was thought by the locals that it had something to do with the subject matter and that there was some voodoo involved. And the thing that um, that that Craven said really bugged him was um, one night in his hotel room, he's asleep, and all of a sudden he hears something uh, out on his balcony. He, hear, he hears a noise, and uh, he gets up, and he opens the blind, and he said the writer is standing there on his balcony outside his door, and at his, he's got a cigarette, a lit cigarette in his hand, and at his feet are multiple cigarettes just lying in a pile. Oh, I see. Standing he'd been there. there for a little while. Yeah. And he said that after that, you know, they pulled him in. He was almost catatonic. He called the producer in. The next day, they got him out of Haiti. And after he got out of Haiti, he was fine. Right. It was just like that, just like the environment or something. But it, that, that was another instance of um, just the, the, the circumstances surrounding the film being almost as horrific and creepy as, as the film itself. I still have, uh, like, when I watched that movie, I, I don't know if it was because of the, the story surrounding the movie or the subject matter or a combination of all of it, but I'd say that if, uh, if, if, if you were to ascribe uh, a, a particular style to his horror, I'd say that one and Nightmare on Elm Street are probably the two that... I, you know, I think for me, for the Serpent and the Rainbow, it's it's the the horror on that is so many levels. Right. You know, in Elm Street, you have you have this supernatural force yeah. that's you know killing these the, these teenagers, and, and and that's a that's a very direct thing. In Serpent and the Rainbow, you have a, a, a mystical force mm-hmm. and a political force, mm-hmm. and this changing government and. This other horror level that's going outside of the societal, the societal level, level yeah. that it's just kind of mixed, and mm-hmm. Bill Pullman's character is just not just you know he's trying to do his thing, but he kind of gets swept up in this revolution, right. Right. and that torture scene that is oh, just, oh it's just are. oh, and you know and I remember uh, Craven reading about this. Craven said that he had the hardest time filming that with uh, Zake Smoke. Uh, yeah, he said that it was. Who was? Yeah, and it, it it was it was it was it was about that time that I started understanding that uh, that actors have completely different personas. Right. And they play. So you look at a character that Zach Smoke played in that, and he just uh, the epitome of frightening. Right. And he said he was just the kindest man, the most gentle man, and just trying to get him to do these horrible things. <laughs> you know. He said that was one of the things he took away. It's just so bizarre. But I didn't mean to cut you off. No, 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 no. I mean, exactly. I mean, but that torture scene was, oh, my God. I mean, it's just, if you don't know what we're talking about, you definitely, I highly recommend <laughs> The Serpent and the Rainbow. The, um, he, the, he plays the, he's the chief of police of the area. That's yeah. what he is. And so they have, yeah, Bill Pullman is going around looking to find this this medicine to use an anesthetic mm-hmm. that they zombie powder stuff, right. but they you know they think it can be used as an anesthetic. And so he's he's a, as a he's a forensic anthropologist, yeah. I think, and yeah. he's 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 going to investigate this. And 
he's been snooping around where people don't want him to snoop around, basically, because I think the feeling is, in the society, this is their culture and this is private. We don't mm-hmm. want any outsiders to, to get involved. Right. And so he, or on the other, on the other end of it, I think there's part of the, we think it's part of, you know, they're causing what this revolution, that you know, right. you're bringing an outside influence that can cause this revolution. And so they... <laughs> They get Bill Pullman, they tie him to a chair and just his underwear. And th- he's got a, a blowtorch to his face that's just blowing gas. Mm-hmm. Just that cold ass gas yeah. is in his face. And he's got a, a lighter that he's just mm-hmm. flicking. It's just, it's just that sound that right. you just right. never know. And then he takes <laughs> this is the horrific part. He takes a spike and, and, and stabs it into him through a scrotum mm-hmm. and barely missing anything but just to prove right. a point. And right. so and then dumps him off somewhere. Right. Oh! Yeah. Even then, I, I think the most disturbing part of that whole sequence was, I mean, the act itself was pretty horrific, but when he got dumped, just unceremoniously oh, dumped don't. in the bloody underwear, and I was oh. just like, oh. I think for me the most horrifying thing is the, the, the I want to hear you scream, and so he yeah. just starts screaming. He just... Not enough. But you know, that's what I think that was one of the things that I I will always love Wes Craven for is that he just he knew how to elevate all of these tropes within the genre. Right. You know what I mean? And and, and just what you said earlier, uh, like with Serpent of the Rainbow, where the horror works on so many levels. Right. I mean, he was so good at that, even with Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, because you, 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 you certainly had the, the recognizable elements of, 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 of the slasher genre. Right, right. But then you had, like, I mean, he was, like, in 84, I mean, what was going on in America, you had, like, you know, this image that we were trying to project of being, like, this perfect, uh, you know, um, 1950s suburbia. Right. You know, and he just... You know, just layer the horror in in such um, unobtrusive and and insidious kind of way. I mean, you just kind of like pull the the veneer it, back. It, and it does. There's a couple things. See that, the rod underneath. The things I think work really well, and it's all about timing. First yeah. of all, Freddy Krueger is definitely the horror icon for the for the Coke Pepsi generation. Oh yeah. I mean, you have, I mean, you know, that, you know, if you want to think 80s, you know, Ronald Reagan, Back to the Future. I mean, when you think, I, 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 Freddy Krueger's among that. And he was he was throwing the values back in the faces of people who were prepared. Exactly. Yeah. The other thing that does it is that, you know, he, you know, this is based on uh, an article he read about people dying in their sleep. Yeah. And so he, he developed it from from, from that. Or, mm-hmm. And and so the same thing with what, what makes Serpent the Rainbow works in the same way is that the, the, the horror comes from from something real. I mean, you know, we're looking, he's looking historically at, at the, the, the regime of, of, of Papadoc, uh, Francois Duvier, uh, and uh, the police, the, um, uh, the, what I'm trying to think of the name, um, the Tantan Boku. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, and, and those, these are the secret police that, you know, they're mm-hmm. on the level of what the Nazis did and, and just horrific stuff. And he kind of weaves this into a voodoo story that works. And so, you know, you, there's some really great scenes of, you know, Bill Pullman goes to a, a voodoo ritual with, with with the love interest, and he has this vision of a woman on a on a boat, and, and she's she's like in oh, the marriage, God, the, the wedding dress, yeah. and you know, they pop back the veil, and she's this shrunken corpse, yeah. and opens her mouth, and the snake comes up. Yeah, yeah. Oh, or or on that note, the scene uh, toward the end when I think. Uh, I think reality and it, mm-hmm. it's. I mean, it started to get a little skewed because remember when Pullman was running down that hallway, yeah. and the, the arms started coming out. They're just unnaturally long right. arms that just kind of triggered the Elm Street memories. So that shot in the alley. It's just and it's just so good. Yeah, it's just yeah, yeah, so yeah. good. So you know, we highly recommend both Elm Street. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, those are our favorites. That's what we're saying. <laughs> watch those two. Watch it. There's other good ones though. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about Shocker. We. Um, I think the weirdest one in that that it's good for me though it doesn't quite fit as is, is people on the stairs. What a bizarre film! Yeah, yeah. it's not. Don't don't get me wrong. I don't think it's a bad oh, film. No, 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 no. It's no. such a weird little movie. It's almost it's almost Carpenter esque. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, people on the stairs is something I would expect John Carpenter make than Wes Craven, really. And it's just you know what I think. It's 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 again you're hitting all these buttons that 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 make me remember these things. I think that the, <laughs> it's my job as host. <laughs> <laughs> well, the uh, well, and you're an, you're an awesome one. The uh, with people under the stairs, 
Um, Wendy Roby, the uh, the mother. Yeah. Yeah. She. Uh, for the longest time, I couldn't wrap my head around her casting because her and uh, uh, the uh, the guy a- Avery. Uh, Avery. Yeah, I'm looking it up right now. I'm trying to get the names right. Everett. Everett. Uh, um, Everett. Somebody. Anyway, we'll have it in a second. So yeah. you go. But but the the casting of those two in particular, I mean, I knew it, it makes sense in the world of the story because I mean the the, the whole the whole situation is offbeat. But right. You, you don't really understand just how offbeat it is until you get further and further into the story and you see the the extent of their behavior. Right. Um, but but I thought the initial casting of those two, Everett McGill. Everett McGill, who I remember from, as Stilgar from the David Lynch's Dune. Yeah, yeah, and uh, Silver Bullet. Silver Bullet. Oh, that's right, he's Silver Bullet. Oh, my yeah. God, I forgot about that. Yeah. That's another movie I've not seen in 100 years. Yeah. Ah, that yeah. movie's great. But uh, but the casting of those two in particular, because they're almost just as if you were to look at them, they have such sharp features. Right. They're almost caricatures of people. Yeah, that's true. And and I think I'm I'm starting to think that's probably why they were cast because they they seem so larger than life and unusual. Right. Um, but 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 that movie, I, and I know it was. Uh, I mean, he even said as much. It was it was just a commentary on um, on on social structure. Right. In because it's such a weird. I mean, I mean, for those who haven't seen a, a quick synopsis. Um, yeah. So um, these there's a, a house with the, uh, a couple who are landlords to a bunch of what I understand tenement buildings and apartment houses, and they're raising the rent too high and causing some trouble. So the some of the residents decide that they're going to try to rob them of. Of jewels or medicine or something. I mean, jewels or mm-hmm. I can't exactly. There's some sort of money or something. Right, treasure, or treasure right, of, right. of something. And so, um, the there's this little boy that oh, I, forgot, I got his pull and what they called him. Uh, it's fool. Fool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fool. Because I I get fool and roach mixed up because they're such weird names. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they send this little boy fool to to go and kind of scout and investigate, and he kind of gets trapped in this house. And what, what you find out is that the couple the the creepy old couple, well, they're not old, but the creepy couple has a daughter, and then they have a bunch of other kids stuck in the... <laughs> and they're also cannibals. So yeah. what I understand is, like, they keep adopting these kids, and who don't work out, they right. put in the basement. Right. And, and, and and so they've got the one kid who... They, I don't know where they got Alice from. they got the one yeah. kid that's kind of working yeah. out, and, uh, and the rest of them, they're just kind of... I mean, there's a scene where they're uh, eating um, dinner, and at, like I said, a fireplace place, and Ever McGill is he's he cutting into the meat, and he's got he's spitting out buckshot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So oh, it's just like it's such a weird movie. Yeah. Well, it ends I, weird, and just well, it's. Uh, I mean, I, he. I think he uh, he went a little John Waters with it, especially Kinda. when you when you get to Everett McGill in the bondage suit. Yeah, and, he's and, running around, and Wendy Roby just pulling the full John Crawford. He's in the wall. <laughs> and uh, but but the, I always thought that movie. The, <laughs> I don't want to blow the ending for anybody yeah, that hasn't watched no. it, but, but that happy ending, that was probably the most bizarre happy ending, ending I've ever seen in any movie because it's like, okay, great, but now what? You know, <laughs> so. I think that's part of it. I mean, okay, so if, just theorizing, I have nothing sure. back to this. So if this is the last movie for your three-picture deal mm-hmm. and you want to make sure they don't make any sequels, that's mm-hmm. how you end your movie. I mean, it's just good like, point. you just you solve point. it. You solve it. There's nothing. There is literally no more yeah. story to tell after this movie. <laughs> that's a very good point. And there's no more other st- There's just nothing. It just ends. And yeah. and it's creepy. And it's a bit. And that has to be the biggest house on the inside ever. Because yeah. you see it outside. It's like, it's like miles and miles on the inside. But well, it looks especially like, between the walls. Oh, yeah. All the cross spaces. Freaking corridors. And it's like. Uh, the yeah. roach lives in the walls, and they cut out his tongue. It's just like uh, the, I have a thing in horror about tongues and eyes. I don't. I get squeamish around tongues and eyes a lot. My sister gets squeamish around eyes, and so but tongues too because I, I like to talk. I don't, that's, <laughs> that's why it works. It scares me. But yeah. when when they when they're talking about why roach doesn't talk, he sticks out and you see his, his cut tongue. He's like, ah! yeah. well, that's another thing that that Craven did so well was uh, he knew how to to dial in. To those uh, those built-in fears, right? You know, like like with Freddie, you know, one of the th- I mean, he was he was very very conscious of what he was doing in the design of not only just the character but the weapon that he would have, right? And so you know that glove, which is now just all kinds of iconic, but but the idea it was kind of 
he he admitted that you know he wanted to have something different, mm-hmm. you know, not just a machete or a butcher knife or what have you, or chainsaws. Not that there's anything wrong. No, with no, those. no. We're not disparaging but, the other, <laughs> other weapons of destruction. But he wanted something unique because the concept was unique and the mm-hmm. situation was unique. But also, he was sort of going back to his humanities professor days and training and and and, and he, you know thinking of okay, you know what triggers those kinds of just responses. Right. And if you think back to the cave people, you know, anything with teeth and claws, and he went for the claws. Right. And and, and that's even you if you look at the film just on, on a purely uh, on, on a purely uh, visual level. Right. And and, and, and and the images that he uses and the use of, of the claw and I mean it's it, I mean it's it's Freaking brilliant! Oh yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's very primal, even from an academic standpoint. Right, but it's it's very primal. primal. I mean, you're, yeah. you're exactly right, and it's and I think I think and I don't know how deep he was thinking, and because I'm of the opinion. I mean, you know, I've I've made stuff. I'm a content creator, and mm. I, I I try to just create whatever in my mind. I don't really think about meaning too much. You know, sure. this is how my mind works. And mm. I know there's some guys like, oh, okay, this is about fear. I'll make about fear, but I think. It comes to for you know when we're academics, we go back and look, and so yeah. you know maybe he's trying to make something scary, but it is kind of because but fear is so primal, and so right. it's smart to do primal things, right. the, the the claws, and mm-hmm. and so because that's that makes it you know a you can raise this better than teeth, and mm-hmm. so because you know vampires are very get locked up teeth, I suppose. <laughs> You don't really see too many scary teeth except in aliens right. and um, who's got scary? I don't can't think of Francis Dollarhide and and, yeah. and Red Dragon yeah. and uh, I'm sorry I've been watching Hannibal lately so it's like yeah. <laughs> so Francis Dollarhide's crazy mouth so um, so yeah it's, it's very private even like in, in Elm Street the 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 wall scene where he's oh um, yeah, yeah pushing, through the walls. pushing through the walls and stuff mm-hmm. it's just I mean that's that's the boogeyman trying to get you. Right. That's the, the that's what you're unaware of when you sleep. That that the thing that frightens us as a kid. What's under the bed or what's mm-hmm. in the closet? Or like Nancy in the bathtub. Oh, I mean, yeah. you know those are the things. I mean, I mean, they're, he's he was very smart about yeah. where, where to. I'm making hand gestures like you yeah. can see. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah. and so it's, it's it's very very smart. So you know, you know, it's what you like about him. If you look at his career, like just his film career. Um, it's really interesting. Once he got out of the 80s and uh, even in the early 90s, you could kind of tell that I, I don't know if, if I don't know if disillusioned is the right word, but I could tell that he was starting to get a little fed up with the whole Hollywood system. And I, I even in like it, I, I've mentioned it in film appreciation. I, I think I mentioned it in horror fantasy. Uh, classes. For those um, who don't know, Dave Brock is a professor here at West Virginia State. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he teaches things. Yeah, <laughs> I, I teach stuff. But uh, um, but I, I always mention uh, Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Right. And uh, just sort of the, the send-up. I mean, because he, you know, he, he's, he's going back and creating... Uh, oh, I think New Nightmare is completely a critique of yeah. Hollywood of, of that genre. Not just Hollywood horror, but Hollywood of that genre. I, think, right. I mean, that's his proof that he's fed up. I also think Scream's the same way. I think, I think Scream's his response to all that. Definitely an extension, yeah. You know, because, yeah. you know, I mean, there's, a, there's some frustration, I think. Well, at that point with Scream, like, what was it, 96? 96, yeah. Um, you know, by that point... I mean, when we talk about horror going in cycles, mm-hmm. by that I mean by that point, the '80s had pretty much the popularity had petered out. Everybody had seen all there was to see, and it was the genre was starting to cannibalize yeah, we, itself. Right, so yeah. that was really the only logical place you could go. Right, people were were, were watching more. I mean, you know, the the blockbusters of the early '90s were were action films: Batman, Lethal Weapon, yeah. and Terminator. These were the ones that were dominating the summer blockbusters. Mm-hmm. The horror films weren't really doing it even they were doing some really crazy tropes at that time like uh, they, they sent Jason to Manhattan yeah. which is ridiculous <laughs> I like the fight scene though with the boxer match where he knocks his head yeah. off that's like pretty much because yeah. and the promos the promos for Jason Goes to Manhattan are amazing but right. the, but they they were doing that and oh, there's some other just well weird. even Freddy's dead I mean yeah Freddy's dead is weird yeah I mean they even even Bob Shea on the record says we just we ran out of ideas. We thought let's just tack a 3D ending onto it. And Which I like the 3D ending. I did too. Yeah, like, but, but, and, I saw, and I saw that in the theaters. And so yeah, but 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 it it kind of speaks to just 
how bereft. Oh yeah, because when they go back, like it, this one has the celebrity cameos of like Rosenberg uh, and Tom Arnold. Tom Arnold. That's sweet. It's not like the cameo in three where they had uh, was it Jaja and uh, Dick Cavett. Yeah, you know that was in context. <laughs> right. <laughs> this is like they go to Springfield and they like, which apparently now they care. In fact, they they, they need children because they don't have any. Yeah, that's weird. They were. I think they were just throwing darts at a wall trying to pick right. story elements and stuff. I mean, again, don't get me wrong. If it, Freddy was in it, I watched it. Yeah, I watched it. it I, I, I won't say I necessarily liked it. I think, but in terms of the state of the genre right, at that time, right. I mean, they were all they could really do was cannibalize themselves and and, and with Scream. I was so glad to see Scream when it came out. I was so glad for a number of levels, for a number of reasons rather, because one, it was just it was a it was a fresh take on a genre that was just constantly getting beat down. And it was a resurgence for Craven, which he absolutely deserved. Right, right. Because I mean, the, the I think the two prior films he had. Because in '91 he had People on the Stairs, and then he didn't do anything until '94, mm-hmm. where he had New Nightmare, and then '95, which is uh, Vampire in Brooklyn, which I've still never seen. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I liked it. Oh, I mean, yeah, but because it's it's Craven, but but it's 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 it falls in line with his. Early nineties, right? Resume. All right, I just I, I didn't say it was just because <laughs> yeah. Eddie Murphy is a vampire. Just doesn't I didn't and I, Angela Bassett. And I just, so now I have to go back and see it. By the time yeah. I was just like, I just don't feel this doesn't feel yeah. right to me. Yeah, <laughs> something wrong. This is off. Yeah, but but Scream. I mean, I, I think he was absolutely the perfect choice to to do that. It's very similar to what they're doing now. I think with uh, the movie coming out with uh, called Ready Player One. Mm-hmm. That I think Steven Spielberg is directing it. Because there are so many references, if, if you've read the novel, mm-hmm. there are so many references to Spielberg. Right. It just who else, make, who else right? Same with Scream. I mean, there were so many references to work that Craven had pioneered. Right. It just made perfect sense. Um, I, I had a, uh, with part four, I can barely remember part four. See, four is my favorite. All right. Three and four are my favorites. Yeah. Elm Street, okay. I love Nightmare Elm Street for what it does, but f- for me, like you, when you were you were in fourth grade when you saw. Right. I was about fourth, fifth grade when I saw three, and so three you know, is is the one in the middle institution. It's got right. um, um, Patricia Arquette's Arquette in it, and our first place. It's got a great cast. It's uh, uh, Heather Lanthancat comes mm-hmm. back, and it's I mean, but it's a really neat story. And Craven yeah. helped craft that story. It's a, and, it's, and Frank Darabont. Frank Darabont. And so it's yeah. this this you know these kids are in the middle institution because of. You know, the, you know, which is the next logical step. Right. You know, we're having nightmares. We can't sleep, blah, blah, blah. Right. They're, they're, and that's the next thing. You because know, it will drive you mad. Right. And so it's funny that I, I, I consciously I, I think that they were not expecting to do this unofficial trilogy of what they did with three. But they had these really great characters in it. And, I, right. and, I, and, and, and they kept killing off the great characters, which mm-hmm. made no sense to me. Because, right. you know, the three survivors of three don't last the first 15 minutes of four and they introduce a new cast. But but it's still interesting. Four is, four is the one with Alice. Yep. Alice and her brother who does Kung Fu. And mm-hmm. I, I, I love I love four so much. It's, That's like the MTV nightmare. It's, it's very yeah. MTV, but it's yeah. very, very MTV. But like, for me, it's not like in a bad way. Like, oh, no, no, no. Because no. you know, yeah. I think they looked at the MTV generation and made made the perfect horror right. film for them. It, it, exactly. It, it's got a, yeah. I got a lot of mixes to it. They completely lose jump rails in five. I mean, the dream trial just, I, I'm just, I get, I'm bored in it. And really, it just, I've yeah. seen it a few times. And it's, I saw the theaters. Though. I saw four, yeah, three, four, five, six. I think, I think, yeah. I, think, I think I've seen from three till the remake. I never understood, since you bring that up, I never, and probably never will, I never understood the logic behind going from something like with part four. Right. Which was huge. Is the biggest one, right? That, that, I mean, in terms of popularity, and, in terms of and budget. I mean, budget, budget, and, and, and then financial return. Yeah, box office. And and they think, okay, well, now that this is a massive success, let's go and do a smaller film and make it darker. Well, it's the same thing. It's the that's the studio mentality of like Planet of the Apes. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. If you if you're not familiar with the story of the Planet of the Apes, the Planet of the Apes is it was a hit, made lots yeah. of money. They make a sequel with half the budget, and then they make another sequel with half that budget. And yeah. by the time they get to the fifth one, it's made like with five dollars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and it shows. Right, it does show, and yeah. it's it's like, and I understand the budget can get a little cheaper because you're using the same makeup techniques and stuff. So you know you don't have to reinvent the wheel, but you also don't have to cut the budget in half. The only time I see where they cut the budget in half that in a movie that works is Star Trek Two. 
Yeah. Because Star Trek One's budget so big, mainly right. because of it. It's got the. Um, you're getting a lot of film history in this in this podcast, <laughs> but uh, Star Trek has uh, Star Trek One. The motion picture has um, the baggage of the uh, incomplete series, the Phase Two series, and that budget's tacked on to make that. And so when they did Wrath uh, of the budget's like half of what it was, but it made a ton of money. So, yeah. well, I think with the, the Nightmare series, and, and one of the reasons why why uh, why Craven was so uh, he, he just washed his hands of New Line and uh, New Line Cinema, and I think for good reason because it got to the point where you know they were cranking these out every year. Right, it was like one a year. It became almost an event. Right. Robert England has been on record time and time again. He said, you know, let's you know, let I would love to have two years in between, you know, a nightmare movie, right. so we can work on the story, you know, and and, and get the budget that we need right. rather than just crank them out like cheeseburgers. Right. Which is exactly what they were doing. And, and, and the quality, I mean, you, you can, again, I love Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> I just want to go on the record and say that. But, but you can see, just in terms of quality, you can tell how rushed these movies were, mm-hmm. just in, incrementally. Well, yeah, well, I, I mean, you know, two is a mess. Yeah. Uh, story-wise, it, it's, it's my least favorite out of all of them. And, and it's the one I've watched the least and the one, I mean... You know that Craven actually offered to give advice on two, and they just studios in the eighties. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like we can fix this. I mean, who wants? I mean, you go to see Freddy. You don't want to see Freddy reborn and and this weird Jesse kid. It's just weird. It's, yeah, it's you know, it's it's weird. Well, it, it didn't. If you look at the canon, like if 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 you the canon of all right. the Elm Street movies, I mean, two sticks out like a sore thumb. Right, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. It doesn't, yeah. And I'm so glad that three just rightfully ignored. Right, right. <laughs> so, and so, and continues to start. The only thing I have a problem with what they do is the, is the fact that they it, it make, you know, three made some really great characters. Yeah. And then they kill them off. And four has some really great characters. And then they kill them off. And it's like... You can thank the writer strike. Right. For that. It's just like... Yeah. Can you remember, the, like, in, I think it was in 88. Right. When it was in production. And they had that huge writer strike, and they were trying to figure out. Well, one, the, two things: they had the writer strike; they couldn't get a script off the ground, so they went into production without right. a finished script. And it got to the point where, at that, like with three, I think there were like two. It was two years between part two and part three. Right. After three became a huge hit, we're going to do another one. Three came out, I think, in '86. They immediately pushed. Part four in a production, and they got hit with the writer's guild strike. Right. So then they didn't have a script, so they went in production without a finished script. It got to the point where they were just piecing the script together as they went. <laughs> but if you look at the script writers, Brian Helgeland mm-hmm. and uh, Leslie Bowen, uh, he went on to do five. Uh, but you know, they, you had these people who went on to, to to illustrious careers in screenwriting, but they were just piecing these together. It was no wonder it was turning people away. That's yeah. why they were killing people. Right, off, right, right. Because they couldn't attract them back. Right, and you know, they couldn't get producer Kev, so they had to replace her with Tuesday Night, which is, I think is one of the, my favorite acting names in history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's her given name, where she's like, I'm going to be Tuesday Night now. And it's yeah. like, or her parents did that to that poor child. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And uh, I don't. I'm actually going to look up Tuesday Night's career because I don't remember anything else after. Because I know they had Joey and Kincaid come back, and then um, Tuesday uh, Night. I, I remember seeing the the, uh, the Never Sleep Again documentary. Yeah, they had a clip where they talked to her. She looks nothing like she did in part four. Really? I really? thought I thought it was a joke. I mean, because it's like they were just trying to pass somebody off. Right, as Tuesday Night. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, totally, totally not the person I remember. Wow. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking up. You can keep talking. I'm looking up. Well, I was trying to think of um, with his. I think I might have told you the other day with his um, recent television deal. Mm-hmm. It was like he he had signed a, a, a new television deal like two weeks ago with Sci-Fi, right? Like the Sci-Fi Network. That would have been something to. It would have been great. I speaking of TV, we talked about his TV work a little bit. Um, he was one of the guys behind the relaunch of the the 1980s Twilight Zone. Oh yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. and so he he directed some of the and, and oh, I think he wrote some of the best shorts in that. I mean, um, for those who don't remember, or don't know there there was a, a you know Twilight Zone's a great and classic, and, and mm-hmm. there's nothing you can't touch Twilight Zone. However, they did came close in in the 80s. They did a really good kind of an edgier, darker Twilight Zone series, and it had. 
you know, Stephen King wrote some stuff for it. Wes Craven did some stuff for it. And some other great people. And I, I know uh, Wes Craven directed the, the pilot. It had a Saturday with Bruce Willis. And A Little Peace and Quiet. And a Little Peace and Quiet, which was probably one of the Amanda best. Dillon. Oh, oh, my God. I'll let you describe that for a minute. You know what? I will maintain to anybody, I mean, with the legions of Twilight Zone fans that are out there, I will maintain and argue to my death that out of all of the Twilight Zone episodes, past and present, a Little Peace and Quiet is probably one of the best. I mean, ranks right up there with the Burgess Meredith time right. enough at last. Right. Just in terms of uh, you know the ironic horror. Um, but, yeah, A Little Peace and Quiet. Um, he, the, well, the, the gist of the story was that uh, Melinda Dillon plays this housewife, this beleaguered housewife who is just constantly being pulled in a hundred different directions by her husband, by her kids. And uh, just can't get any time to herself, really. And all she wants is what the title implies, a little peace and quiet. So one day her kids are off at school and she's out in her backyard doing some gardening. And uh, she her, her little trowel hits a wooden box buried underneath the tree, pulls it out, opens it up. And um, it's, uh, if I remember correctly, it was a necklace. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah. a little pendant. Yeah. And uh, she pulls it up and... It's a nice necklace, and she puts it on. I think, well, okay, well, that's weird. So they cut later in the day. I think it was at dinner, or no, it was breakfast the next morning, and it was as chaotic as usual, and they were pulling her in 100 different directions, as they always do, and she just got fed up. And she said, would you please just be quiet? And as soon as she says it, everything freezes. freezes. And just time completely stands still, and it doesn't start up again until she says, start talking. Right. And uh, I don't know if I want to blow the ending on this. That's to you. It's up to you. It's, but again, this it's was a very eighties ending. Yeah, it's a very eighties ending. I was about to say this was done like in the mid eighties, oh. and uh, they they of course Craven being Craven does a wonderful job interspersing all of these little uh, uh, political elements uh, throughout the story. Like you'll hear these news news stories on the radio about the nuclear proliferation, and they're they're trying to get an arms deal together and all that. And there's even a really funny scene where you have these uh, anti-nuclear war people coming up, solicitors coming up to her house, asking her for help. And by this point, she's mastered the whole be quiet thing and can stop time at at will. And she has some fun with him and basically dismisses them. And it's not until later when she's uh, taking a bath and uh, she hears uh, her husband... uh, yelling like panicked and she comes out and she comes around the corner and it's the the quintessential horror image from the 80s you see the emergency broadcast system right on the tv on the television and you know that nuclear wars launched launched and it's not a test and uh, finally she just you know the the kids come in they're crying the husband's crying and she, the siren, the siren, the air raid siren starts right. up and she just yells, shut up, stop, shut, shut up. And then finally everything freezes and she walks outside and looks around and everybody's in various states of uh, discord and chaos and cars have run into walls and people have been run over. And uh, she uh, turns the corner and the neighborhood notices that all the frozen people are looking upward in, uh, in one fixed uh, area. And she uh, follows their gaze and looks up and sees a nuclear missile suspended in midair. That's the warhead's just about to explode. Right with the with the Russian yeah. hammer and sickle on the I side. Got, I got chills just. Yeah, it's a cool. It's me. a cool episode. I'm. He did Saturday too. I'm trying to. I'm, when I look up on IMDb to find his episode. Oh, we did her Pilgrim Soul. But you know, he had the biggest problem with Melinda Dillon. Did he? Yeah, and it was. Um, it wasn't that she was unprofessional or anything like that, but. He was laughing about it. He, he said that uh, she questioned every single piece of direction he gave. And uh, uh, like like every single piece of direction that, that he gave, she questioned. And it drove him bananas. Mm-hmm. Because it's like he couldn't uh, it's like he couldn't do anything right, or at least he couldn't do anything that wasn't going to be second guessed later. Right. And, you know, Melinda Dillon, I love Melinda Dillon. Right. I mean, if, if I had the honor of directing her anything she could question all the way <laughs> i wouldn't care but but at the end of it he um he he said when it was all said and done she sent him a big bottle of wine and uh with a note saying that um, i'm sure you'll agree it was all worth it thanks for a great show <laughs> and that, that was his melinda dillon story but yeah what a great episode oh uh, he also did um 
Her Pilgrim Soul, which is one of my favorite episodes in the the thing. You know, I'm I'm embarrassed to say I don't oh. think I've seen that one. You, know, you probably have. It's, well, you probably seen them all. It's just been a while, right? Because I mean, this this came in eighty. Six, eighty-five. This is original air date, December 13, 1985. Yeah. So it's a it's about a computer designer who's de- developed the hol- words. No, no, no. He's developed. Oh. You know, he's developed. <laughs> you're so close. There's so many. <laughs> well, you're thinking, you're like, thinking about the, the guy with the who can't remember the, the society's words change on him. Yeah, that, that's and that's okay. a good one too. Right. Kind of like the, at the end of that, the look in the kids' book. He's got that over there. The dog is his Wednesday. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> no. So he he invents this. Um, Software, this holographic so- software, and uh, a spirit gets into it, and it forms, a, you know, like a fetus, and it grows, and it's this woman's life from the 1920s, and so it, f- and so he. I don't remember. Oh man, I have to show it to you, man. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the guy, you know, starts spending more and more time with the machine, and this ghost that's in this machine, and yeah. you know, he's forgetting about his own relationships because. And you know, since we spoiled the other one, spoil this one because it's it's track. Because it, but it in in the fifteen minutes that it is, or I think or thirty, I think it's a fifteen minute one. Um, it goes through her entire life wow. in this hologram, and so he's attached from you know from you know from baby to little girl to young woman to a woman he falls in love with to an older woman, and she's wow. and it goes through her entire life. Wow! And it is brilliant, and it's it's like one of the best episodes. I actually, it may I think that may be still in my truck because <laughs> I, I, I have them on the DVD. They're, they're, they're all three seasons are available on DVD. I don't know, maybe out of print, but I have them. Yeah. And I, and I haven't seen them in a while because they're yeah. in my house down south. And so I finally, when I came back back to West Virginia, I was I brought them with me so I could watch them again. Yeah. I, mean, I highly recommend that series. I mean, uh, Chillers used to run in the mornings. I don't know if they do anymore. I haven't had Chillers in a long time, so I don't. They used to run in the mornings, but it's, it's a good show. You know, the other thing I, I, I think that he he didn't get far enough credit for uh, was um, his acting ability. Right. Um, I mean, New Nightmare is probably the, the the obvious example because he was playing himself. But do you remember John Carpenter's Body Bags? I do. It's- in, do you remember the very first, uh, the very first segment at the gas station? Uh, r- r- remind me. It was the uh, it was the episode where the uh, the young college student she uh, it was like her first night on the job. She was working an overnight shift at a gas station. Right. And she goes up to the. Uh, it was one of those old school stations where they actually go out and do the they they have to manually flip the pump or right, go right. out and do the fueling themselves. Right. But she was the only one there that was going to be shifting the place overnight. And uh, the guy that's there, I think it was Brad Dourif, right, is showing her the ropes and all that. And then he leaves her to herself. But the first customer was the drunk, the old scraggly drunk dude, the creepy drunk dude that you think that right. that's the person that's going to give her, you know, give her the problems for the remainder of the story. It was Wes Craven. Oh, okay. It's been a very long time since I've seen anybody, but I know it just came out back out on Blu-ray, and I have and. I probably not seen it since it was on VHS, so that's got to be in 90, 91, 90 something. Yeah, and the one with David Warner and the yeah. hair. The, yeah, oh yeah. Speaking of David Warner, Nightmare on Elm Street Connection, do you know he was cast as Freddy Krueger? I did not know that. That he was the first would've, one cast. Would have been very different. Yeah, and I, I can't remember why he backed out, but there, if you go online, you can actually see makeup tests. Oh, well, I, if, I, if I find some picture, pictures, I'll post yeah. at the bottom of this. Uh, you have a picture of you with Wes Craven. Talk about how you met what You said you met him. Oh, yeah. Talk yeah. a little bit about that. That was, uh, let's see, 2001. Um, I was in film school. And a um, really good friend of mine, his name is uh, Jimmy Palmquist. He's a, he was also a fellow. He still is. He he actually he, he has um, his own uh, website called Nerd Locker, and he does film reviews. And he had a big retrospective on Wes Craven. But he, a fellow horror fan uh, from Cleveland, which is where Wes Craven's from. Right. And um, it was the f- I think it was my first year of film school, and we had just started palling around and, and watching horror movies and stuff. And he said that uh, you know we've got this film festival in Cleveland, and Wes Craven's going to be there. And it was a it was a package deal. It's like it was a it was a private dinner that you could buy into. Mm-hmm. And um, afterwards, uh, there was a um, uh, as part of the festival, he gave a talk about his life and career and stuff at, the, at a theater downtown. So I was like, hell yeah! So we bought the tickets and uh, drove up there. And um, so we went to the dinner, and not fifteen minutes into it, here he comes in and he makes his rounds. Uh, you know. Uh, across the dining room, talking to everybody, and it wasn't one of those rushed 
kind of meet and greets, mm-hmm. you know. And that's, I mean, I, 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 was, I was in love with the guy and everything he did up until that point, but this really cemented uh, my, my esteem for the man because he took the time, every single person at every single table, it wasn't at all like, oh, got to get through this. Right. This one. But he was genuinely interested in what you did and, and your interest in horror and if you worked in movies. And, and the first thing I told him, first thing out of my mouth, was uh, you're the reason I went to film school. And the thing I'll always remember was just the, the genuinely shocked look on his face. I mean, he looked at me like his eyes got wide, and he was like, really? <laughs> like he couldn't believe right. that he would inspire and, right, somebody. somebody. yeah. And I told him, I'm like, I said, I'm not kidding. It's, it's like just your approach to films, your, 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 your attack, just everything. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure I phrased it more eloquently because I was just sort of like, you're a movie. You're moving good. Yeah. The happy make me. Yeah, that's that's what it, that's what it felt, felt like. But but I think I went into autopilot. Mm. And even even my friend, even Jimmy, I said, "How did that? Did I sound like a like a total idiot?" And he said, "No, you actually sounded put together." I said, "Well, it certainly didn't feel like it. More like you know what what you just said." But he was just so gracious, and I just you know I, I think about it, and I actually get a little choked up because it was just it, I mean it, we talked for a good like five or ten minutes you know and it, and it wasn't just the casual you know all nice to see you but it was just we were talking about horror we were talking about the psychology of it mm-hmm. and we were talking about his work and like, it was nice to be back in Cleveland and it was just such a pleasant encounter and I thought you know what that that is just a quality human being right, right. there you know and, and, and it was also at that point where I could not reconcile the man with the movies that he makes mm-hmm. because he's he, he was you know very gentlemanly fiercely intelligent which is obvious and he yeah it's also obvious in his films um but uh and just very engaging very humble and very tall <laughs> with an iron grip i actually had a bruise on my shoulder when he like he, he, he squeezed my shoulder when he, we posed for the picture <laughs> but i don't think he realized his own strength because i was standing there like yeah. You're gonna get that smile out of you. Yeah, I I wanted to like take a picture of the bruise. That's that's my worst worst craving bruise. (laughs) But uh, but that was uh, oh oh, and then later that night, he did his talk with Elvis Mitchell, who is a highly respected journalist. But toward the end, I mean, he he asked all the questions you would imagine journalists would ask, like where do you get your ideas and what draws you to horror Mm -hmm. and, and all that stuff. And toward the end, he starts talking. He starts phrasing his questions in my mind. He started phrasing them in a very biased way, and it, it, to the to the effect of like, uh, well, you know, there, there's such a backlash against horror now because you know it it, it, it can potentially cause people to want to do this or right. should. I just thought it was very leading and very telling. I guess of his attitude toward horror. And so at the end, uh, he asked the audience for questions, and you, know, you raise your hand, and my hand shot up. And uh, it was, it, I wasn't immediately picked on, but after a couple, uh, my hand went up, and uh, I said, yeah, I said, I don't have a question as much as I do a comment. And I saw, it was funny, I was, I was looking at Wes Craven, and I saw the look on his face. He looked like, oh, God. <laughs> And, I, and it kind of took me took me a second because I thought, why is he looking at me like that? And I said, I just want to uh, clarify something you said, this question that you asked uh, Mr. Craven. Um, I said, I don't fully agree with it because, you know, horror shouldn't be, you know, um, it, it shouldn't automatically be a catch-all for society's ills. And, and, and what Mr. Craven does, I think, really elevates the genre and blah, 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 blah. And uh, then I'll, I'm looking at Mr. Craven when I'm t- saying this, and, and he looks at me, and he's like, he's like, okay, i got to say, when you, said, uh, uh, when you said that you had a comment, I thought, oh, God, he's going to tear me a new one. <laughs> he thought I was going to say something, like, really negative, because right. I, th- I think his questions were starting to get to him. Right. And I, I think he thought I was going to dogpile on it, but that, so that was, that was a nice exchange. But, God, I miss that man. I only met him once, and that was 15 years ago. Hey, well, at least you know, I, mean, I, never, I never... But, but doesn't it feel like a part of your childhood's gone? A little bit, yeah. I mean, it, there, there's a piece missing there. Yeah. And then so... But the great thing about, you know, you know, even though he's gone, we have a legacy of his work. Yeah, absolutely. And so we can share that legacy, and yeah. we definitely do. I know uh, we're going to do this season on Bros. Boost movies. We're going to do uh, 
both M Street three and four is a two parter on the list. Sweet. Because they're fun. Yeah. And so uh, uh, we just did They Live. <laughs> so, oh, I bet that was a great one. Yeah, so that's actually going to post today. So, 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 so you can listen to both if you like what we're doing here. <laughs> but, you know, you know, we're, we're wrapping up. We're, we're about an hour. But, um, and time flies. Yeah. And, and, Has it been an hour? It's been an hour. Uh, 59 minutes and nine seconds, according to my <laughs> oh microphone. My um, but, uh, you know, he has left a great legacy of work, a good body of work, and has spawned, you know, I you know, there's talks about another M Street and another M Street with Robert England being involved, which yeah. I think is great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I like the remake. I'm not I'm not as much as a bit against the remake as I was uh, mm-hmm. against the remake of the Friday 13th remake is bad, but I, the <laughs> M Street's M Street's. Had some essences that I enjoyed. Plus, yeah. you know, Jackie Earl Haley was not a bad Freddy Krueger. Yo, God, he was brutal. He was, you know, just so it was, yeah. you know, you know, fit the part. I mean, if someone's going to be, you know, because I, I'm, I'm sorry, everyone, that um, uh, oh, the names are all going away yeah. now. Um, Robert England is brilliant. Yeah. But he's also getting up there in years, and right. so he can't be Freddy at 90. Right. <laughs> Fresh <Yeah>. meat. <laughs> He won't have teeth. <laughs> yeah. so. What's funny though is like if they did a movie now, it would be perfect because he's actually at the age now that he was playing when he was thirty. Right, like eighty four. I think he's like sixty seven now. Right. So yeah. And so I've, I've met Robert England. I never got the pleasure of meeting much credit, but I've met Murray Robert England on a couple of occasions, yeah. and he's brilliant. He's he is. he's funny yeah. and just a, and he he is a a guy who loves fans too. Yeah. And so that's part of it. And then Liam looks at it's great to hear that Wes Craven was really. Just, just generous with that with oh, his yeah. time no, and stuff he, and so. Yeah, he's solid the earth. I mean, really, really, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a well, that's a, a good way to end. Uh, for more information, you definitely can check out IMDb and start finding some great, great films. I recommend *Serpent the Rainbow*. My my friend here will, never, will definitely recommend *Never Ending Street*, but I think he, he'll safe to say that any of them are good. Oh so. yeah. So you, you can't go wrong. So go out and enjoy, if you, especially if you've not seen them. If you have, I recommend you take your favorite and go share it with someone who hasn't seen one. Especially now Halloween's coming. Yeah, it's, just, it's, it's great for October. So, you know, it, it's, a, it's a great time. Uh, thank you for hanging out with us for the, night, the hour. And this was, was a nice special. It's a great retrospective. Good, good, good. We'll talk about West Craven. Yeah, I think he'd appreciate special. it. So Thank you for doing it. Hey, no problem. So we're out. We'll, we'll see you guys later. Mobcast Network.